Like I said, we are going to the book of Romans, second chapter. If you do not have a Bible, uh, Mr. Doug will uh, will be happy to send one to you. Put your hand up, and uh, and he will bring a Bible to you. Romans two, second chapter. Starting, we will start with the sixth verse, reading through the sixteenth. As you're uh, as you're paging there. Um, we learned last time in the uh, first five verses of chapter 2 about that not that judgment is wrong in of itself, but that we need to be concerned more about the condition of our heart uh, in the midst of judgment. That a heart bent on retaliation is a heart that harbors the same thing. Uh, and that it is important, so important about the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And in that softness, a heart, even in the midst of true judgment, can become a source of life, even in the midst of true godly uh, judgment. I have been watching uh, some men who have been walking alongside of each other now for, since last fall. And I believe that what I'm watching is uh, men who are coming in humility and in their own brokenness, coming alongside of other men and becoming sources of compassionate loving uh, lives, walking with each other. But in, in the midst of that is accountability. In the midst of that is the reality of what sin does in a person's life. And so um, I appreciate uh, men who are willing to walk with each other, tell each other the truth, and stand with each other. As I think about this, I think about the passage of, um, of the Apostle John the 16th verse, and it says, the first move of the Holy Spirit. It says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. In these verses, Jesus provides a framework around the truth of Romans 2. You see, sin is not primarily about what we do, but about what we believe. And what we believe then leads what we do. Righteousness is lived out of the motives of our heart more than our actions. You can live in a world where you can be very moral, but if the motive of your heart is not toward God... They're not living a righteous life. And also about the fact, and I love this part about it, that the evil one is being judged today. The court came in. The evil one has been judged. He has been found guilty. And as the, uh, the Amish would say, his future is for sure and for certain. And that changes the way that we live our lives. Because so many times we live in a life that we sit under the umbrella of judgment that seems to be uh, condemning. And we don't have to. Now, I do want to remind you, we are in the section of Romans that is not yet talking about salvation. It's talking about judgment. And so the things that the Holy Spirit's revealing to us is in the light of judgment. 
And so remember that. Remember that as we go through this. We're getting there. Romans 3, the last part of the chapter, opens up the door to salvation to us. Uh, But be patient. Um, It's not easy as a pastor to be preaching these words uh, because we want to quickly go to salvation and the comfort that we have and what Jesus did on the cross. But sometimes we have to see the darkness and the badness of the darkness in our life before the light of Jesus Christ really means anything. Because as some, as some people have written over the years, um, cheap grace, cheap grace really has no purpose in our life. It has no power in our life. And so as we walk together through this, starting with these, um, these first few chapters of Romans, let's walk together in the hope of what's coming, but in the reality of being able to look honestly at our own hearts in the light of God's word. Amen? It's not easy to do. We so quickly want to get out of that because we don't like sometimes what we see. So let's pray together and ask God for, to move. Heavenly Father, we just, we just thank you for this moment. We thank you for your word that's true, and it is more true than the per- person that is speaking it. And so, Father, you have something to say to each one of us today, and it may not be found in my words, but it is in your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that each and every heart before me is open to your word. And so in the midst of that, that, Father, they hear what you want to say to them. We love you and we thank you. We believe you for all things, and we believe you for the fact that you are good all the time. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As we go into this time, let's start looking at this passage, and may the Holy Spirit open this up to us. It says in verse 6, starting with verse 6 through 10, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Strange thing has happened in Christianity. There's been a growing um, division between the Word of God and the hearts of human beings. There is a belief that um, I can come here on Sunday and walk away on Monday and be a completely different person. That somehow there is like the, like the Jewish people of old who had a double standard over their life that somehow they could hear the word of God and yet be unaffected by it. And so that double standard then causes judgment and separation And I believe that it is because of a faulty theology we have between faith and deeds. Somehow we as as a church have come to the place where we believe that God um, we serve overlooks our sinful actions because 
we attend church or participate in activities or even stand up in front and preach. And so we're special people. But even from old, God calls his chosen people to live a life worthy of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul says. The Old Testament in Isaiah 3, uh, 10 through 11 says these words. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. And in the book of Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, the 10th verse, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to their, de their deeds deserve. Jesus also himself affirmed this in John 5, 28 through 29. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will bear, hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The Apostle Paul, in agreement with this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each of us may receive what is due for the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. So as we study this, we have to remember that this passage reveals is in the context of judgment, not salvation. That in, in, in Romans 2, the whole context of this passage is in judgment. We will get to salvation, like I said. So contextually, we need to know a truth. Nowhere in Scripture does, does the Bible teach that salvation comes from works. Nowhere in Scripture. But just as we saw in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are taught that judge, the judgment is by works. Judgment is by works. MacArthur says this, the subjective criterion for salvation is faith with nothing added. But the objective reality of that salvation is manifest in the subsequent godly works. That the Holy Spirit leads and empowers believers to perform. For that reason, good deeds are perfectly valid bases for God's judgment. True salvation will produce a life, and I love this, true salvation will produce a life that will grow into the purposes and the good works of God. If it doesn't, then one should be concerned about the reality of that salvation. In verse 7, we see that the Holy, what the Holy Spirit does. Listen to this. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It is the Holy Spirit that produces good works within us. It is Holy, the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the persevering power to do what we're doing. And we need to remember that. We need to hold on to that. You see, the Pharisees were sticklers for the law and morality. And yet, because they missed the relationship with God, they totally missed his good works. And so, this reveals to us how the Holy Spirit manifests himself within our hearts. Did you notice the words? So it says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek what? Glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
Listen, glory is a person who is willing to lay down their own rights to themselves, let their lives give glory to God. Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that, that we struggle with, especially in America, is this is my life and I can do anything I want with it. No, it is not. No, it is not. Your life is here to give glory to God. And so live it in such a way that you give glory Second is word is honor. It's a person who's looking only for the praise of God and waiting on the day they will hear these words from Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. In our sinful nature, we're so looking for our own honor. We're so looking for position and that we'll somehow get honor from that position. But yet, the only praise that is worthy of receiving is the one from our Father in heaven. So what are you looking for? What are you looking for in in respect of your life? And then immortality. It is a person who is living each day believing that someday this body will be translated into a brand new body. Anybody here that you're really glad about that? Anybody struggling with this body? What am, I, what am I doing with this body? And how am I living with this body that I live in such a way that tells me that I'm living for immortality, that I'm living for eternity? That I care more about that. Um, I wrote a phrase down here that just kind of hit my heart. It is the ability to take temporal loss for eternal gain. To lay down, you know, we live in such a life that we say that, you know, we, we need to get as much as we can in this earth. And I have to have what I have coming to me. But sometimes God calls us to lay down the temporal for the eternal. And are we doing that? You see, God is judging us for our deeds. He's judging us for who gets the glory, who gets the honor. Are you living in such a way that you're willing to set down the temporal for the eternal and that that what's happening inside is more important between what I have here than what I have out here? And finally, he says that he will give us eternal life. It's not just about a future. It's not just about something that we, sometimes Christians get accused of being um, so heaven-focused that they're no earthly good. And yet, the eternal life is, it's a quality of life on earth. We have to remember that the unbeliever has an eternal life also. It's not just that believers are going to go on forever, but unbelievers are. And our eternity in Jesus Christ should change the quality of our life. 
that we live now as Paul, says, Paul lives. I know, right, that, that I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, but that Christ lives within me. The life I live now, I live by faith in Jesus Christ. And that should move us. It's a life that reflects God in our soul. What does that look like? It's, it, it, it's the character of God in our soul. I think that 1 Corinthians 13 describes it this way. God is patient. God is kind. God does not seek envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor. He is not self-seeking, easily angered to keep records of wrongs. He does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. That is a quality of life that changes us from the inside out. The way that we, we, prayed, uh, we prayed today for, for one of our uh, friends who helps us in, in our worship up here uh, because there's a young man that's not showing up to work and he's not working when he's there. And so... How can you be the quality of God in the midst of that? How can you encourage your partner to work with you and to work side by side? It is the eternal life in there. And this is in contrast to the next verse that talks about those who are uh, unbelievers, right? In verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This is in contrast to the unbeliever. The unbeliever is what? They're self-seeking. In the original language, it has to do with a hired mercenary who does the work solely for pay. It is the life that seeks only self-gratification with no regard to others. But not just self-seeking, it's also a life that rejects the truth. It's a narcissistic life that is based around itself in nature, who, found, who says that its own truth is the only truth. It's a life that's unbending to any direction but its own. Accountability does not live in the life of one who is unredeemed. It is, its rebellion is foundational and rejection of God is the result. And so self-seeking, rejecting the truth, but also follow evil. Follow evil. Someone once said, no one lives in a moral and spiritual vacuum. A person is either godly or they're not. When I was reading Revelation, I just, it always, when you get to the 22nd, or yeah, the 22nd chapter, it says, let those who do wrong continue to do wrong. Let those who are vile continue to be vile. Let those who are holy continue to be holy. The reality is you do not live in a spiritual vacuum. You will live one way or another. And so, Jesus said this in Matthew, uh, the uh, sixth chapter, the 24th verse. No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate one and love the other, 
or he will hold one and uh, he will um, hold to one and despise the other. So which one are you? Which one are you? And you say, well, no, okay, so, so what happens to an unredeemed? It says that, do you see that in the verse? It says that um, uh, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress. How does a person know that their deeds have put them in that position? They live in constant state of trouble and distress. The drama of this world continues to unfold in their life. Proverbs tells us that, uh, that, that when the storm goes by, the wicked are gone and the righteous still stand. And so as we come uh, into this, I just think the, the life and the deeds of the unbeliever, even in the midst of trouble and tribulation, will be rewarded. Verse 10 tells us how? By glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. You know, there's two principles of peace that God teaches us in, God, in this word. The first principle is that it is a peace that rules our heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. How do you know when that's happening? It's when everything is a mess around you and you're standing steady in the midst of it. So difficult. It's true. It is true. But there's a second piece, and that is a piece that surpasses all understanding. <laughs> That's why you're disagreeing with me right now, because it surpasses understanding. In the midst of the mess, why you are, the anchor is holding your life absolutely doesn't make sense to you. It should not happen. And yet it is, because the redeemed are those who have glory, honor, and peace, because their deeds are reflecting the godly good works that the Holy Spirit is working out in their life. Does that make sense? To those who are redeemed, it does. But I want you to notice two things in here. Did you notice that twice the Apostle Paul says these words for the Jew and then for the Gentile in both verse 9 and 10? Why do you think that is? I think I, as, I was, as I was doing my study this week, I thought, that's interesting. He says for the Jew first and then the Gentile. I believe it's because of this. Because they were God's chosen people. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And I believe the Apostle Paul is honoring the Jewish people in the midst of this. But I also think this, and this is another reason, because he knows Romans 12, or excuse me, um, Genesis 12. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Do you think that's still Evident today and, and, and true today? I do too. Absolutely it does. Are the Jewish people following the Lord? No. 
Are they still called his chosen people? Absolutely. And we should be supporting them. Every country that has supported the Jewish people has been a blessing to that country. Every country that has turned its back on the Jewish people, the size of New Jersey, have been cursed. Have been cursed. And so God judges your deeds. So examine yourself. See where you're at. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 would say, examine your life. Does your life reflect you giving him glory? The only honor is from him. You're living a life willing to lay down the temporal for the eternal. Is it? Answer that question. The second thing that God does, which I think is so cool, is he judges impartially. He judges impartially. Listen to the verse. It says in verse 11, For God does not show favoritism. That is a huge verse. Favoritism is the act of judging differently because of the person, position, or status of one individual over another. It is the exact opposite of true justice. In fact, we get this in our, in our world today because we have, um, we have a picture of true justice in a woman, right? You notice what she is? She's blind. She's blind. Why? Because a person's place or position or status should never, ever affect true justice. In front of them, the scales of justice done no matter what, who's in front of them is true justice. Now, we're struggling on this today, but she's still blind. Um, and that is true. I find it interesting that you find it in the world. God's true justice. People do, uh, do know it. Whether they live it or not is another thing. So this is, she, she is a picture of impartial justice. So why is impartial justice so important? Why is it so important for God to say that he does not show favoritism? It's very important. Some of you have just started coming and learning about the Lord. This is the first truth about impartial judgment. It brings hope to all lives. If it's true that, that God is impartial on his judgment, then it's also true that no matter where you have come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what, what you have done even yesterday, Today, you can receive the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. You can receive his redemption. Your life can be changed forever. It doesn't matter. Because he doesn't look at you. If you're coming to him, honestly, he does not look at you in your past. He looks at what he can do in your future. But it comes only to a life that receives the judgment of God and allows his judgmental light to shine on the sin that has been trying to destroy you. But it is a great hope. 
Fanny Crosby wrote this song, To God Be the Glory. Listen to these words. It says, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And it goes on in the chorus. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Amen. So that is the first truth of impartial judgment. The second truth is this. It brings that which brings a great comfort also brings a great responsibility. In verse 12 through, through 13 says this, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For is not those who hear the law, it is not those who, who hear the law uh, that are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. The prophet Jeremiah says this about prophetically speaking about the law of God. He says, I will put law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. In Romans 1, it says that we who have rejected God do not reject God because of lack of knowledge, but because we suppress the truth. We push it down. We don't want to know him. That's why we rebel against God. That is why um, he says this. But as, as I thought about this, who is the greatest one that knew God the most and yet in the midst of it rebelled? Lucifer, most created being in all creation, was given the highest status of the angels in heaven and yet he pushed down the truth and said the phrase, I want to be like the Most High. And then passed that on to every one of us. And that is what has been pushing us. But we must realize this too. If you're standing here before me and sitting here before me today and proclaiming to be a Christian, you have a great responsibility. A great responsibility to respond to that. You see, the more that we are revealed about God this amazing God, the more responsibility you have to respond in humility and submission to him. Jesus, in the context of telling his disciples to be watchful and study and, re and wait for his return, uh, said to Peter, who asked this question, is this parable for everyone? Or excuse me, is this a parable or is this for everyone? And in Luke 12, Jesus answers that question. Listen to what he says. He says this starting in the 47th verse. The servant who knows the master's will and does it, does, and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given, much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been trusted with much, much more will be asked. This is exactly what Paul is saying in these verses. 
Those who have sat under the law are the Jewish people. And they are responsible to respond in response of obedience to God. Those who have never heard the law are responsible to respond to what they know. And those who reject that will have many blows for, for the one who rejects it, um, who knew, and few blows for those who do not. James says to us, don't just be um, merely listen to the word, do what it says. For it's a great responsibility to sit in the hearing of God's word and to do nothing about it. In fact, I will tell you that with my message today, it's why many are, there's some struggle going on in this room. Because you know the things you should do and you have not done them. Settle that with the Lord. Settle that with him. Because Peter, in a description of a false prophet, false teacher, in the, second in the second book of Peter, the second chapter, the 21st verse, says these words. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to turn their back on the sacred command that was passed on to them. These words should strike our heart today. It would be like you hearing you have cancer and not doing anything about it. It would just eat you up. I had an aunt who, um, who thought she had shingles. So she didn't tell anybody about it. She just thought she had to endure it. And she ended up dying um, because she had cancer. It went from breast cancer and, and metastasized into a cancer that literally ate through her skin. People of God, this word is a flying scroll that flies over top of us. And for those who reject it, it's a curse, as in Zechariah. For those who receive it and live it out, it is the greatest blessing in all the universe. And this word is true. It is true. So we've looked at God's judgment in the light of our deeds and in his impartial judgment. The last one is our motive of our hearts. The motive of our hearts. It says in verse 14, these words, Indeed, when Gentiles do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So God's judgment on our hearts come from the truth that his word has exposed our heart and opened us up to the responsibility of responding to it. It is the light that has been revealed to our hearts from God. In the first chapter, we learned that there, there's a light of creation. 
in light of creation has opened up the fact that everything shouts, there's a God, there's a God. Anybody see the leaves pop back out again from the trees? You see new trees coming up from the ground of seeds that have been setting. All shouts, there is a God, there is a God. And so, creation. But verse 14 talks about the fact that it is also from our conduct. Do by nature things required by the law. It is sometimes hard to understand that unbelievers can sometimes be more moral and more loving than Christians. It's because every single one of us have a conduct from our conscience, or excuse me, a conduct from within our hearts that it is written within us. A parent has a natural tendency to love his children, work with ethics at his job, and experience injustice in their life. In fact, I think it's so funny. We've been talking about, from people who have been talking about um, uh, there's no absolute truth, and yet when an injustice is done to them, they'll be the first ones to scream, there has been a wrong done. They cannot take um, uh, relative truth so far as to apply it to their own life, only when it applies to what they want to do. And so, as you think about your own conduct, as you think about your own life, it shows, it shows what you know to be true. But listen to this. This is interesting. Our conduct can actually be um, a witness against us. Because as we live out morality, as we live out truth in our lives and yet reject God, it becomes a witness against us that even within our heart we knew that there was one who was greater than us and yet we we're unwilling to bend our knee to him. And so our conduct can be a witness against us, even our good conduct. Just think about that. I thought that was, I think that's just fascinating. This, the third one is conscience. It says um, that their conscience also bears. Conscience literally means knowledging them at other times, even defending them. Conscience literally means knowledge or better yet, co-knowledge, which means that each of us have built an instinctive knowledge of right and wrong. In my study, I came across a story about an African tribe. Knew nothing about the Lord, and, but they knew about guilty and innocent. And so in their courts, they came up with an idea. And this idea was this, that they would take the people accused and they would heat a knife up and they would take the knife and they would touch it to the tongue of the person. If the person was innocent, their saliva would run and they would hear a sizzling, but there would be very little effect of the, of the heated knife. But if there was a person was guilty, guess what happens to a person when you're guilty? You get a dry mouth, right? And so it would burn your tongue. And that is how they determined innocent versus guilt. Found that interesting. Should we try it? No. Oh, <laughs> I just found that fascinating. And, you know, in our conscience today that doesn't, there's not a soul inside of this room today that doesn't know the sin that they're doing. 
And they see their conduct, conduct continuing to promote their sin. And all creation says, there's a God. So God's judgment is true because of our motives of our heart through creation, conduct, and conscience. But there is another light. Another light that is revealed here. Fifteen times in the Bible it says mystery. There's a mystery that's a light. The gospel. God has revealed to us an amazing truth. You see it in verse 16. It says this will take place in the day when God judges people's secrets through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. You see, it's so amazing that eternity has been set in the heart of every person. That in, in this room, there is nobody that doesn't have a conscious understanding within their soul of someone who is greater than them. It is the truth that the restlessness of each of us, each one of us has experienced or is experiencing, is actually this eternity. It's actually this eternity working out in our life, causing us to be restless because you can't fit in the vacuum of your heart anything other than Jesus Christ. Everything else will fall short. You need Jesus, that's why you're restless. In the midst of this mystery, what is our responsibility? Proverbs 25.2 says, it is, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. It is to realize that this ache in your heart, this pursuit of addiction, this pursuit of things in your life is for a reason. Because nothing else can fill it. And it is your responsibility off of that ache to say, what do I need? Is that pastor really right? Is Jesus Christ really the answer? That is the grace of God's judgment. That your deeds are judged. That your motives of your hearts are judged. There's no impartialness. Because his spirit is constantly calling your heart to come to him. Now, this is a great truth. Listen to me. Who's the judge? Isn't it Jesus himself? Isn't it Jesus himself? Absolutely. It is, it, I read it to you earlier, but it, but Jesus Christ in, in John, in the, in the, I believe it's the fifth chapter, says that, that the authority of judging has been given from the Father to the Son. So Jesus Christ is your judge. Now, wait a minute. Why is that amazing? Some of you are judging me in this room this morning. You know what you never did? You never died for me. So the one who brought redemption is the one who brings the judgment. The one who gave his life, shed his blood for you, is the one who sits on the seat of judgment. The one who said to his father, I will take his place, her place, 
as the one who brings judgment. That should get some people excited in this room. That should give us hope. Jesus said these words. In regards to Solomon, now there is one greater than Solomon here. In regards to Jonah, there is one who is greater than Jonah here. Hebrews 3, 3 through 4 says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And so today... In the light of God's judgment, don't you dare stop wrestling too short. Don't you dare take a comfort too quickly on what's going on inside your heart right now. Let the Holy Spirit have its way with you. Look at your deeds. Are they they giving glory and honoring God or are they not? Wrestle with it. But do not let the evil one, do, don't you dare let the evil one say, I know what you've done in the past. God judges impartially. And the comfort of that is the fact that it doesn't matter what's behind you. What matters is what's in front of you. That's what matters. And so today, in the light of his judgment, why is Jesus greater Because the cross became not only the power to overcome sin in the lives of those who believe, but also the power to make a public spectacle of the evil that has tried to destroy your life. And in the midst of that, the judgment will be on him, then on you. And so listen to the Lord today. It is the power of the judge in John 5 that says, I have judgment. It's good to become acquainted with the coming judgment because Jesus is the judge who sits on the white throne. You say, well, what's the white throne? Let me read that to you. Revelation 20, the 20th chapter, the 11th verse says, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead in Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. It is right and good for God to judge our deeds. Salvation is not about deeds. It's about what Jesus did. Judgment is about the deeds that you've done off of what Jesus did for you. Where is that today? Let each heart search its own. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we... uh, conclude this time in your word. I pray that, Father, that it has spoken uh, to our hearts. Father, uh, there is a great judgment that's coming, and it's good for us to reflect on that. 
it's good to reflect on that in our own hearts. And as Lord, um, it's so easy as the Israelites to, to kind of feel um, under the comfort of our own chosenness, under the fact that I go to church and I do all these things, that somehow that becomes foundational for us to take comfort. And Lord, are we truly moved and changed by your Holy Spirit to live out your glory, to live out your honor, and to live out the good purposes that you have for us? Not just morality, but the... the the good works that the Holy Spirit moves us to do. Most of the time, Father, those are the things that I don't want to do. But Father, I pray that in this family that we'll be moved by the fact that you see our hearts, you see who we are, you love us dearly, and your eyes are not eyes that are blaring down um, uh, unjust judgment but they are eyes that in love, that judge because it is the kindness of God that bring us to this place of judgment before we see your face. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll bless each and every person in this room, that, Father, those who are wrestling with this will continue to wrestle, and that, Lord, you will work in their lives, and, Lord, that they may see that the true judge is Jesus Christ, the one who sits on the white throne the one who is at the right hand of the Father now, praying on our behalf, intercessing on our behalf right now, that we hear what you wanted us to hear and that our lives are changed and transformed by your word. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory for this day in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.